It's truly a blessing to be back with our church family here at Pippin today. I realize that uh, and certainly wish to continue to express thanks to you for your words of encouragement, your words of support for those gospel meetings. The congregation at Corinth was very much excited about the meeting and so we're thankful to have been able to be a part of it. But as always, we're so delighted to be back here with our church family today. I might also wish to express words of appreciation to Brother Gary, the, the fine lesson he delivered last Lord's Day morning. It's always such a blessing to have men not only capable, but so very willing to use their talents in that way. In addition to that, I'd like to express a word of appreciation to the Vincent family. They, they came to all the services at Corinth as well as the, uh, the lectureship yesterday at All Good. So, so very delighted and thankful for their words of support and also certainly for their physical presence as well. As we come back today, I wish to ask you to consider for just a few moments this morning, not only the ark as it's described in the Bible, that ark now of which Noah, of course, was a part, but also that ship known as the Titanic. I've heard several years ago lessons involving this very idea, but I chose to try and develop it a little differently than those that I had heard. So I would ask for you this morning to think with me about lessons you and I can learn using the ark as an appreciation, thinking about how it differed from the Titanic. I know when I use that word Titanic, perhaps we each are mindful. Maybe you've seen pictures of that vessel, that ship, but maybe you haven't. Today, I hope to describe it well enough so that you can at least in the eye of your mind appreciate that ship and maybe how it can be a reminder to you and me about some things in the Word of God. Here are some introductory thoughts. The ocean liner, that ship known as the Titanic, it occupies, I suppose, a place in lore that will not be easily replaced by anything else. As we study it this morning, at least think about that tremendous ocean liner and the, what fate that it very sadly experienced. Well, think of all those on board. Think about how they felt as they started that journey. Think about how they felt in the moments before it sank. As you and I think about all that today, I'm convinced there are things you and I can appreciate about our journey through this life. And are we on a safe vessel or not? And are we, in fact, faithful to the character of that vessel or not? As we study all of that today, it'll be easy to draw the comparisons. But as you think about the Titanic, maybe you've seen that movie. I think it came out in 1997. That, of course, has been such a matter. It's shown so often on the television. But besides that, there are books and memorabilia. There are various and sundry other articles and sites that are dedicated to the nature of the Titanic. As we begin our journey of our study this morning... Why don't we set the matter of history for just a moment? I don't want to take too much of the lesson to do that, but I do at least want to share it because I think it'll help us appreciate the shock and the suddenness with which the Titanic sank. You'll notice on that slide that by the late 1800s, there was a fantastic growing interest in large ocean liners that could carry lots of people across the Atlantic. There was a whole new world in the United States of America and lots of people from Europe were wanting to go there. And so ocean travel that was rather cheap was a very great thing of interest. And so companies were in competition to construct these ocean liners. One of them was the White Star Company in conjunction with the Harlan and Wolf Company. They were in competition with a number of others. And you might notice on that slide, 
On the 31st day of March, 1909, work began on a ship that was known as the Titanic. Two years and two months later, they had completed the hull and they slipped that massive vessel into the water. Now, the inside wasn't completed by that point, but it had gotten to the point where they could at least allow it to float so they could work on the interior in the way that the designers wished. You might notice that in the final analysis, it was completed some months thereafter. All of the exterior and all of the interior, and it was a vessel that was impressive to say the least. These chose to design it in such a way it was a bit different than most of the competition. This one was known for its extravagance. It was known for its opulence inside. As far as I can tell, the pictures you and I have seen were probably very much the case. It was a beautiful thing to behold. The wealthy people wanted to travel on this one because of the extravagance attached to its interior. The places, the cabins were very fancy. The dining rooms and the balls were extravagant. The food and the china, the actual things they utilized were of the finest quality. You'll notice that to date it was the largest vessel, the largest, most massive thing that had ever been moved by mankind. 46,000 tons. I've put in parentheses that was not too far from 10 million pounds. It was a massive vessel as you come to the bottom of the slide. It left Southampton, England. It did so, and you might appreciate, on the 10th day of April, exactly 104 years ago today. That's why I chose to deliver that sermon today. It left Southampton, England on that occasion, first sailed to France to pick up some more passengers and allow others, in fact, to disembark. And from there, it sailed back to Ireland, picking up some more passengers. But ultimately, it set sail for New York, New York, the United States of America, and hence was to cross the Atlantic Ocean. As you come to the bottom of that slide, there were 2,240 on board, passengers and crew. The next slide begins to fill in the remainder of the characteristics. Four days into the journey, on the 14th day of April, 1912, you might remember that, of course, there were a number of warnings from sister vessels that had traveled in the northern Atlantic about ice. In fact, some of them had been rather serious warnings about the reality of ice. However, the captain and those on board the Titanic chose to steam ahead at maximum speed because obviously to get across the Atlantic as large a vessel as that was in the shortest amount of time would have been extremely impressive. You'll notice that as those things proceeded, that very evening, it was a moonless night, it was clear and cold. There were those individuals high atop in the crow's nest on that ship, watching carefully in the waters ahead to see if there were any impediments such as icebergs. Suddenly, they spotted icebergs 500 yards in front of the vessel. And remember, it was a massive thing, 46,000 tons moving at maximum speed. The captain gave quick orders to make sudden maneuvers, and so though they turned, though they shut off the engines and turned the, the wheel, it struck the iceberg. It did so beneath the level of the water, and at that point, that was at 11.40 p.m., Sunday evening, the 14th day of April, 1912. From that point on, in the next few moments, there was an extreme interest in determining the extent of the damage 
the captain as well as Thomas Andrews, who was one of the designers. They walked and tried to investigate the character of the damage. Mr. Andrews, once he saw the extent of this, he said, she'll sink within three hours. A vessel as impressive as that, with 16 bulkheads built into it, supposedly making it, for many at least, under the impression that it was unsinkable. And Mr. Andrews, with a forlorn face, asserted that she has less than three hours. The orders were given to lower the lifeboats to, in fact, save as many as possible. You may notice that I've tried to very briefly highlight. At that point, they proceeded to lower and to, of course, have as many lifeboats and all of them on board and to carry the people away. But ultimately, you realize that with water coming on board, the gash from the iceberg 300 feet long, as water was coming on board, ultimately the ship sank at 2.20 a.m. the 15th day of April, 1912. A little over 700 were saved. Over 1,500 perished. In a ship that was thought to be unsinkable, in a ship that so many thought was the prestige and the powerful reality of human ingenuity and human engineering, and yet on its maiden voyage, its maiden voyage, very first time it had ever been used, and it sank. You'll notice on that particular slide, still to this day, it remains one of the most notable maritime disasters in history, the sinking of the Titanic. Now, as you and I have very quickly highlighted those things, let's go from there to some lessons from it. I hope as we think about that disaster, and you can even imagine to this very day, what must the newspapers the next morning have been trying to assert the ship that nobody thought could sink had sunk? Lesson number one. What about the study of engineering? As you and I give thought to this Titanic, I've asked you to think about the dimensions that were used in its construction. Aside from all those things, you'll notice that the Titanic, 30 by 3.14 by 5.95 in a particular set of units, now, I chose those to make the numbers a bit reasonable. If you take the total length, the total width, and the total height and divide them by factor to at least make the numbers manageable, those were the scale sizes of the Titanic. Look at the next line. What about the scale sizes of the ark? Now, the ark to which I refer is the one in the Bible, the one in Genesis chapter 6, the one that God can, commanded Noah to build. Its dimensions, you'll notice the length was almost the same. The length as well as the height, or rather the width and the height, had numbers, though they were reversed, at least they were structured in such a way to appreciate the maritime stability of that vessel. Question, how did Noah know how to build it? Did Noah guess those dimensions that they would be proper dimensions for a vessel that would safely navigate upon the waters of the ocean? You and I know that answer. By the time that the Titanic was constructed, there were significant computer programs and there were significant investigations and scientific developments and inventions, but there was no such thing with Noah. 
God, of course, gave in His infinite wisdom those dimensions to Noah. And He knew that that vessel would be stable, and knew that vessel would be sturdy, and He knew that vessel would carry those on board safely just as they needed to be. Might we at least appreciate the wisdom of God in that regard? God's the perfect engineer, isn't He? Sometimes you and I know that humans can make their mistakes. The Word of God and its perfection is never to be questioned. I've asked you to think about some of these verses. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The closing two verses of 2 Timothy 3. As the Word of God, again inspired of God, look at all these verses that I've asked you to consider. Have you ever pondered to think that when that flood came in the days of Noah, Noah, as far as the Scriptures revealed to us, had never seen it rain. In fact, the implication of Genesis chapters 2 and 3 is that God had watered the world by usage of a mist from beneath. It had never been by way of a rain. And yet, here God commissioned Noah to construct an ark, and yet it may well be and seems likely to be that Noah had never even seen it rain. Didn't it take faith and didn't it take absolute belief in the nature of God to trust what He said when you'd never seen it rain? And yet, He not only did that, He believed in the dimensions. Noah, Genesis 6.22 tells us, did everything that God said. He didn't change the dimensions the slightest amount. One final thought would be these additional appreciations. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25 God's dimensions for that ark were the perfect ones. It was the ones necessary for the safety of that family of Noah and all those things aboard. Now as you and I think about the Titanic in relation to that, here were engineers who built a vessel and it was impressive to say the least, but she floundered. She didn't even complete the opening maiden voyage. There were some gigantic differences. Maybe they're highlighted in some of these verses. Hosea 14.9 declares, Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. Trust and confidence in everything that God says. You and I can make a number of applications the organization of the church, do we trust that God knows what He says and says what He means? We must. He hasn't left us to figure out what we would desire or prefer concerning it. He has dictated it, and His engineering concerning that is ideal. Not only that, look at that remaining verse in Revelation 15.3. Is it not on that occasion designated by way of calling the God of heaven is such that He's always true. That means the dimensions that He gave to Noah were the right ones. As we've studied so far about that Titanic, one last thing. May we submit that if God was right in His engineering concerning the ark, isn't it true He's also right in His designations concerning your life and mine? You and I too, as we motivate our way through this life, Surrounded by so many obstacles, there are icebergs in your way and mine too, I might add. 
Are you and I prepared to safely navigate the minefield of the icebergs and to land safely on Jordan's shore on the other side? I trust that we will appreciate and recognize only in the Bible do we have that safe navigational plan to live faithful until death. Revelation 2 verse 10 in Psalm 55 verse 22, Cast thy burden upon the Lord and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Isn't that a statement of comfort? Peter echoed it in 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting all thy cares upon Him, for He careth for you. As you give thought to those things, I would ask you to contemplate the Lord's invitation of Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Did you notice? It's the soul that needs rest. This physical body is not going to live on and on for all eternity, but the Spirit will. Oh, how we need to ensure that we are in the safe confines of a vessel that will navigate this life successfully. How about the second lesson? The lesson of humility. Now this one too, you will often think about the character of the ark and that of the Titanic. At the bottom, I would ask you to notice that the Word of God informs you and me that Noah, in a very humble way, responded to the commands of God. We've already highlighted he never questioned God concerning the rain. He never questioned God concerning the ark's dimensions. He never questioned God concerning taking aboard the animals. All of those things are amazing. After all, think of how long it took to build that ark. Think of how long it took to ultimately fill it with all the food and all the various things necessary to last for a whole year on board that ark. It was a lot of work and a lot of time, and no one ever questioned God. Isn't it amazing how today some are so quick to think they have a better way than God does, one that involves less work, one that's more convenient, when God is always right? Speaking about humility... I thought it might be wise to consider some quotations. I mentioned earlier that this vessel known as the Titanic was widely regarded as unsinkable. Would you please notice with me some of the quotes that I was able to find with respect to that vessel? First of all, on the 15th day of April, keep in mind what day that was. That was early on the very day the ship sank. Early that day. A gentleman named Philip Franklin, who was the vice president of the White Star Line, the vice president of the very company that built the Titanic, made this statement, and I quote, We believe that the boat is unsinkable. How about another quote? This one from the captain of the ship itself, the very gentleman who was responsible for guiding her and motivating her in a safe way across the sea. That captain declared, and again I quote, I cannot imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. I cannot conceive of any vital disaster happening to this vessel. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Now, as he made that statement about that class of ships, and the Titanic was only one of the class, admittedly, but you'll notice the captain in his own mind was unable to imagine a circumstance in which a ship like that one would founder. How about another one? On the very day that 
they boarded the ship. The morning of that day that they boarded, comments like this one was made by one of the crew. God himself could not sink this ship. There were questions, you see, even as the various passengers boarded, that there were questions about the integrity, the character of this ship, and one of the crew apparently was so convinced of the shipworthiness of it that he made the comment, even God couldn't sink this ship. We all know what happened a few hours later. We all know what happened in terms of the arrogance of man and the failure in terms of humility, but let's develop that like this. You'll notice that pride throughout the Word of God is lifted to a point of often described by way of destruction. I'm not by any means asserting that all of those on board the Titanic were evil workers of, of the devil. Maybe some of them were faithful individuals to God, but nonetheless there was a spirit that seemed alive and well amongst the crew, amongst the shipbuilders, amongst those who were responsible for this vessel, that it was a triumph of human engineering and that it could not sink. We all know what happened again just a few hours later. Isn't it true in Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. The very time that humans lift their spirit to the point in their arrogance and pride that they think they have everything in place and that there's no need for God, that's the very time the God of heaven will intervene to illustrate that that thinking is so wrong. Later we notice in Proverbs 29 verse 23, one more time, the folly associated with overt pride. Are we not in position to remember that as God pronounced a judgment upon the Edomite people in Obadiah, verse number 3, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. The Edomite peoples in their own pride had thought nobody can defeat us. They were under the impression that in their place, their capital city was so well guarded by natural features, I might add, that they were absolutely unassailable. No army anywhere could march on them in a surprise attack and they would be defeated. We all know what happened to Edom. The God of heaven did judge them and God did bring them down. Their own pride had led them to be deceived. As you and I come to the next one, aren't we reminded so often that even today that kind of thinking is dangerous? If you and I think we can navigate the waters of life without God if we think we can somehow safely arrive on the golden shore beyond this life without God, we are a fool. Our own pride has led us to think what obviously isn't true. Didn't Jesus say in Luke 14, in the midst of that chapter, in verse number 11, He highlighted before your thinking in mind that those who exalt themselves will be abased. That's an absolute guarantee from God. Those who exalt themselves... Have you ever heard someone say, I don't think I need God. I believe I'm doing fine just as I am. The sense of haughtiness, the sense that goes with a lack of humility. That verse goes on to say, though, that those who humble themselves will be exalted. Maybe one last thought, James 4 verse 6. In that particular case, aren't we all reminded, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. May we always did strive to maintain a very powerful air of humility, understanding that we are but mere mortal creatures. God's the one that's infinite. He's the one that's perfect. 
you and I, as we strive to live by His Word, must do so always with a tender heart and an humble spirit as we develop that more thoroughly. Aren't you and I given many individuals in the Bible like Noah who did this? As often as we referred to Noah this morning, Noah built an ark. How big, God? And he proceeded to tell him, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high, and that was a massive vessel for its day. We've already learned it rivaled the size of the Titanic itself, at least in terms of overt character of, of scale dimensions. Noah built it. He didn't have electrical tools like we have today. He didn't have massive things that could use hydraulics and pumps to move things in place, but he built it. Noah acted very humbly in response to all the commands that God gave. We should stand so impressed at what Noah did. You'll notice in Acts 9 verse number 6, we have so many other individuals in Scripture who acted so selflessly and so much with an air of humility. On that road to Damascus, when the Lord Jesus appeared to that gentleman known as Saul, wasn't it Saul who responded by saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He didn't in any way try to tell Jesus what he wanted to do, nor did he tell the Lord what he preferred to do. He humbly said, what do you want me to do? Maybe in finality to that slide, aren't you and I reminded so often in the Word of God that our way, the way that's safe, is not in ourself? I'm sure the fame, most famous verse in all the book of Jeremiah tells us that very thing. Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Suppose the captain and the crew of the Titanic had felt that the way was not in themselves. Suppose they had been more receptive to the reality of the icebergs and suppose they hadn't been so acknowledging of their own in invincibility that they would have listened to those warnings. Maybe they'd have slowed the ship down some so that it would have had time to avoid the iceberg. But it was full speed ahead right to their own death. May I say that in life, that same kind of thing can happen. We speed right along, ignoring all the warnings of the Bible. We speed right along to our demise, our doom, and our death. How tragic then it is to realize that as we come to the bottom of the slide, these warnings, of course, are echoed so often. Man's way is not in himself. We must never think too highly of ourselves. Now I realize that in the Word of God we're told that it's perfectly right to have a degree of self-love for ourselves. We love our neighbor as ourselves. But that's different from being personally arrogant and selfishly arrogant. We must never go there. For if we do, we're no different than those, of course, that were the captain and the crew of that Titanic. And who, in fact, despite all the warnings that were given to them, they never heeded them. Today, isn't that still something so easily that can happen? The Word of God and those that love us warn us you shouldn't live this way. You need to change and repent and give your life over to the one who will safely carry you through to eternity. And yet, we think, I believe I can handle it myself. I don't believe I need to change. I'm happy the way it is. And we all know what happened to the Titanic. As we turn the slide, though, to come to the next one, these thoughts do remind us 
that, of course, that faith is where I would like us to close our lesson. It is sad to contemplate the fate of the Titanic. I stated earlier that it was 11.40 p.m. on that Sunday evening when it, when it struck the iceberg. Two and one-half hours later, she was on the bottom of the ocean, 12,000 feet deep in the Atlantic. Over 1,500 people died, and they thought it was unsinkable. They were under the impression that nothing could happen that would cause that ship to sink, but it did. No wonder as you think about the fate of the Titanic, may I say, what about the fate of the ark? In Genesis chapter 6, Noah constructed an ark, but that ship safely made it through the entirety of the flood. Isn't that remarkable? That ship and all that was aboard it landed safely on Mount Ararat after the flood ended. So the ark didn't sink. The ark didn't founder. The ark, you see, wasn't motivated by selfish interest in the sense that it had an air of humility about it. Noah had submitted exactly and fully to everything that God had said. May I ask, what about your life and mine today? Are there elements in your life or mine that we wish to hold free from God? I want to do this my way. I like what I'm doing. And I know the Bible says not to, but I'm just not changing. My friend, if any of us think that way, we're headed to the same fate the Titanic had. But this one is so much worse because it's eternal. Let's develop that more thoroughly like this. In that lesson text of Hebrews 11 verse 7, we noticed that this morning it said, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which also he condemned the world. Noah acted in faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11 verse 1. At the most basic level, faith is saying, God, I know that you always know what's best. And even though my personal thoughts are not in agreement, I'm going to do it your way. Our world is in such trouble because men prefer their way to God's. They want to do things their way compared to God's. But God's way is always right. As you and I studied that earlier, it brings us then to this observation. In 1 Peter 3 verse 21, the ark is used in a remarkable way to show you and me something that we must never forget. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Peter made reference to the ancient day of Noah, he referred to the like figure. Something in Noah's day was a figure for something in our day. And that figure highlights the remarkable character of the church. The ark, you see, floated to safety. It was entered, and as the waters of the flood lifted that ark upward, the ark maintained safety. Today, there also is an ark of safety. It's known as the church of Jesus Christ. It's the church of our Lord, and all of those in it are just as safe as Noah and his family were inside the ark of the old era. Might I ask then at this point, the rest of this slide is going to be an attempt to develop that somewhat more thoroughly and carefully. Notice that they entered the ark by way of that door that God told Noah to put in the ark. 
you and I enter this precious ark today through the door. And that door is none other than Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the door. And that which He's authorized is the act of baptism in which we become children of God by faith, Galatians 3, 26 and 7. And so as we enter the ark, we then are such that our names are on the registry. Not for a ship like the Titanic, but for the blessed ship known as the church. Is your name on the registry of the church? Do you have your boarding pass? Are you safely on board? If you're not, you know then that there's danger around you outside. There's no security and no safety except on board that vessel. There's coming a day, of course, when port of call is going to take place. Will your name be on the port of call when you arrive at the destination? Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grace shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Which list is your name on? The one for the resurrection to life? or the one for the resurrection to eternal damnation. You see, I don't want to be like those who foundered aboard the ark. They based everything upon, of course, their own consideration, and the Titanic sank. But no one his family were safe aboard that ark. And you and I, if we're faithful members of the church, we're safe too. Because the Lord has washed our sins away, and He keeps us safely. I would ask you to notice in Hebrews 2, verse number 10, Jesus is there called the captain of our salvation. Aren't you excited about the thought, we have a captain who won't make the same mistakes the captain of the Titanic made. Jesus is a safe and worthy captain. He's been tempted in all points like as we are, and yet He never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 Today, as you then think about the destination of this blessed body known as the church, you and I know the Titanic never reached its destination safely. It was a harrowing experience, and so many died. Look at the middle section of the bottom of that, of that slide. We have the fullest assurance in the Bible that this vessel known as the church will arrive safely on the other side of Jordan Shore. Death is going to come your way and mine. We know it. If the earth stands, we know that death is coming to us. Hebrews 9.27 still says, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Don't you want to arrive safely at the judgment? You must be aboard the ark to get there. Today, are you a member of the, of the persons riding on the ark? Within the sound of my voice this morning, there are those who are not safely members of that ark. Those who at this point are relying on some other means besides the ark. May I say, in light of the Titanic, we know what happened to it. We know what's going to happen to all who are not on board that ark of safety. The New Testament fills your knowledge and mine with the reality that there's coming a sweet, sweet day for the faithful. When they're going to hear words like these, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. They will disembark from that ark, if you please, known as the church, and they'll be then ushered by way of the judgment in the golden strand of eternity, heaven. On the other hand, some will disembark. They hadn't been on the ark, you see, known as the church. They've, found on, they've been riding some other vessel, captained by the devil. And we know when they disembark, it'll be for a judgment point of eternal damnation, and they'll be cast away evermore into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. Is that what we want? Is that what you want?
may I submit to you, let's not make the same mistake that they on the Titanic made. Let's listen to the warnings. Let's listen to the nature of what it is to live faithfully and to always heed it in faith just like Noah did. As we close this lesson this morning, we've used the Titanic to remind us about the integrity and character of the church. All that remains then is a very, very brief summary because the moment of question is yours and mine. Are you riding in the vessel known as the church today and are you faithful in that regard? If you're not, it's time to come back home. If you have at one time been a faithful crew member of that body, but you have in fact strayed away from faithfulness, don't remain in that condition because you know the Titanic sank and you're headed to eternal doom. While there's still breath within your lungs and the capability of your mind, make changes today. If on the other hand you have never become a member of that crew riding on that safe vessel, today's the day to make it so. Jesus, as He in fact will welcome you aboard, will do so with a smile on His face, and you will have one too. You need to believe in Him as the captain, the Messiah of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Today, if we could be of assistance to you in any of these ways, we would invite you to come as does the Master, and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.